for the reading of God's Word in John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I will not read all of the woman at the well. It's a pretty lengthy passage, and we're going to break this up over several weeks, but I'll read down to verse 10. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealing with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 3, verses 25 through 30, where the Jews and the disciples of John were becoming concerned about Jesus and the fact that he was gaining a greater following than John the Baptist. But we also saw that John the Baptist, Jesus said he was the greatest man born of a woman. We saw his greatness in the fact that he refused to be envious of Jesus. In fact, he was joyful that more people were following Jesus than following him. He saw himself as the friend of the bridegroom who took great joy in bringing the bride and the groom together. Now, we need to keep that story in mind as we come into chapter 4. It's not very far away, and so we've been introduced to this idea of a bridegroom and the idea of a marriage. So as we look at chapter 4, we see that the Apostle John, if we pay very close attention we see that John is a master storyteller. It's not bad for a fisherman. He has learned how to weave stories together, and he sets up themes and contrasts, and he makes typological connections. And if we're not attuned to the typology that he uses, then we're going to miss various layers and levels of understanding of the Scripture. If we read the text just with grammar in history in mind, which is important and we should do that, then we might miss some other subtexts or some other things that are going on that bring more insight into John's story. Now, if we miss this, if we miss this typology, it would be like going to a movie without a musical score. Just think about your favorite movie and what that movie would be like without music. <laughs> it, would be, it would be flat. The music behind the scenes and what's going on on the, on the film 
helps us to reach emotional highs and emotional lows. It creates tension. It creates drama. The music alone, not just the dialogue. And so if we miss John's typology here, if we miss John's subtext, then we will miss the tension and the drama that is happening in this text. For instance, what would the movie Jaws be like without those two musical notes, right? Dun-dun, dun-dun. You know, what, what would it be like without that? I mean, before we even see a shark, we know what that means, right? And for those of you after Jaws that would go in swimming or scuba diving in the ocean, you hear that, those notes in your mind as you're swimming, right? <laughs> you're always looking, you're looking around. Or what would, what would Top Gun be without Kenny Loggins' song, Danger Zone? It, it would be flat. So if we pick up on, or if we don't pick up on these typologies, we will miss then what John is helping us to understand. We will miss the tension. We will miss the drama. So today I'm going to introduce to you the story of the woman at the well. We're, this is going to be just kind of an introductory sermon. We're not going to be able to get into great details in the dialogue. We're just going to kind of set this up. But we're going to see some things that John has inserted in here that helps us understand this, this story better. Some things that we could easily miss if we don't slow down and, and pay close attention uh, to this story. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is one of John's transitions. We see this a lot. He's taking us from one story to the next, so he, he transitions uh, in like changing a scene. So in verse 1, John writes, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then we have this parenthetical sentence. Uh, perhaps he was trying to explain uh, to the religious leaders or those during his days that Jesus himself did not baptize anyone. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You remember in Corinthians, everybody was saying, well, I was baptized by Apollos, and I was baptized by Paul. Can you imagine somebody walking around and saying, well, I was baptized by Jesus. That is a better baptism than anybody's baptism. But Jesus himself did not baptize. Only his disciples did. And he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, once Jesus started his public ministry, the word about Jesus quickly spread, so much so that it caused great attention. In fact, it came to the attention of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they were beginning to hear about Jesus, and they wanted to find out more about Jesus. And they had already been concerned about John the Baptist. I mean, you know, John the Baptist was already calling them a brood of vipers and a bunch of snakes, you know. Uh, so they were already concerned about John the Baptist. So here was another one coming on, and how are they going to, to deal with that? And they were concerned. You know, there are a lot of false teachers running around. We, Josephus tells us about before Jesus' time, and even after Jesus' time, there were false prophets, false teachers. And so there was a lot of these upstarts. But they were concerned the fact that Jesus, his falling was getting even greater than John the Baptist. And, um, and so 
Jesus came to the attention of the Pharisees, and so there was trouble brewing. It was getting ready to be some, some uh, a kind of a showdown, just like the Pharisees were already going out to John the Baptist. They were probably going to seek out Jesus and try to figure out what he's doing and try to figure out how to shut him down. But Jesus wasn't interested in starting a turf war, at least not yet. It wasn't his hour. It wasn't his time yet. There would be a time when, when he would confront them directly, and they would respond by crucifying him. So it wasn't time yet. So Jesus, rather than causing problems and causing friction between the Pharisees and John the Baptist and his disciples, he decided to leave Judea and start out back to his hometown in Galilee, which brings us to verse 4. Verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you just read that quickly, well, okay, he had to pass through Samaria. It's adi is the is the Greek word there that is used. It, it has this idea that it was imperative, that it was necessary. In fact, Jesus had to go. It was necessary. He had to go to, through Samaria. Now, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Why was it such an imperative? Well, he, he didn't have to go to Samaria to get to Galilee. There was an alternative route to take. In fact, many of the Jews would prefer this alternative route, even though it was a further distance away. They preferred this alternative route so they wouldn't have to defile themselves going through Samarian territory. So why was it necessary then? He could go through Samaria. He can go up through the Jordan and valley and and beyond so it wasn't necessary to go through Samaria just to get to Galilee but Raymond Brown says this expression of necessity means that God's will or plan is involved it was necessary he had to go through Samaria because it was the will of God you remember Jesus said I only do what I see my father doing and here it was necessary because it was the will of God that Jesus go to Samaria. And as we'll see, it was a divine necessity because God had sovereignly arranged an appointment here to arrive at the right time, at the right place, at the right hour, an appointment to meet this Samaritan woman. Now, to really feel the tension in this story, we need to give a little bit of historical background of the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, uh, for one, particularly why they hated each other so much. You need to know that. This there was a hatred of, between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds because the Samaritans were partly Jewish and partly Gentile. This mixture happened when Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom in 72, uh, 722 B.C. Assyria came down, destroyed the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, and killed many people and took many people captive. And for some of the people they took captive, they, 
replanted them in this area, and then they took other Gentiles, um, pagans, worshipped other gods that they had captured, and they put them in the, the, the same area. <laughs> they, they put them together with the Jews. And so the Jews and the Gentiles, the pagans, were living amongst each other. And what ultimately happened is they began to intermarry. And not only did they begin to intermarry, there began to be a religious syncretism, meaning they took the Jewish religion and they took the pagan religion of, uh, of their neighbors and they melded it together. And so they were a mixture of Jews and pagans and they set up a temple in Mount Gerizim. They set up a temple to worship there. And uh, you can see some of the narrative of this in 2 Kings chapter 17, if you want to read a little more about that. Um, well, when the southern kingdom, Judah or Judea, when the southern kingdom, it would be Judah, came back from Babylonian captivity, there began to be reforms. This is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was working to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah was working to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And in those reforms uh, through Ezra, it was decided that the Samaritans were to be excluded from Jewish worship. They were unclean. They were persona non grata, meaning they would not allow them to live with them, worship with them, be near them. And so there was a policy of segregation. In fact, that was the time when any of, if any of the Jews were married to the Samaritan women, they would have to be divorced and sent away. It's a very odd time. But it shows you how important, up until the time of Christ, how important it was to keep the Jewish bloodline pure because they were to give birth to the Messiah. So Christ has been born. That's no longer a major issue. However, the Samaritans, they responded in like kind, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, well, you can't segregate from us because we're going to segregate you. You know, we're going to segregate you. We, we can't deal with you. And so they put their own policies of restrictions. They rejected the writings of um, of the prophets. They rejected the Psalms and the Proverbs. They rejected most of the Old Testament except for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And then again, they built a temple of worship that had this blended worship between Judaism and paganism, and this blended worship happened on Mount Gerizim. And because of there was great tension, an animosity between the Jews and Samaritans that was at this point over 500 years old. Rabbi Eliezer, you can see the animosity of the Jews. Rabbi Eliezer at this time says, He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like to one that eats the flesh of swine. That's how much they thought that even eating the Samaritan food was unclean 
a popular, uh, popular prayer in those days was, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. <laughs> That's, that kind of explains it. That's how they feel about it. Don't remember the Samaritans in your resurrection. They don't deserve it. Don't raise them from the dead. And sometimes this animosity would blow up into physical hostility, uh, such as the Hasmoneans destroying the Samaritan temple in 128 B.C., or when a fight broke out between the Jews and the Samaritans in 52 A.D. You can read about that in Josephus. And another reason why the Jews often would avoid going through Samaria is not just the fact that they would become defiled by the land and unclean. That was one big point. But another reason why a lot of Jews would avoid going through Samaria is because when the Samaritans saw Jews coming down the road, oftentimes they'd get out there and beat them up, take their stuff. So it could be very, very violent. So when you read this story, you need to understand the absolute hatred there was between the Jews and the Samaritans. And how surprising it is that the Scripture tells us that Jesus had to go to Samaria. It was a divine imperative that he goes. And, and this also tells you why the story of the Good Samaritan was so scandalous to the Jews, right? When the lawyer even answered Jesus back, which, which one is the neighbor, Jesus asked, and the lawyer said, uh, the one that showed kindness, he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He couldn't say the words. It was such a, a story that turned everything on head. Today we see the Samaritans as a positive thing. You know, a good Samaritan is a good thing. But back in those days, it would be like saying a good murderer. You know, how can that, how can, how can that be, right? And so many of the stories of Jesus has that kind of background and that kind of punch to those who would be listening to his, to his stories. Um, so again, Jesus had to go through Samaria, not because he couldn't take a different route, but because God was ready to bring the Samaritans into his kingdom. It was time. So what, what do we need to see in verses 5 through 8 is the meeting here of the woman at the well. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the, the sixth hour. It's about noon, 12 o'clock. A woman from Samar Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away from away into the city to buy food, which already tells you right there that the disciples were already starting to kind of turn. Remember what the prayer was? If anyone eats the bread of the Samaritans, it's like eating pig's flesh. But here, the disciples were willing to go into a Samaritan town to get food. So they were starting to change a little bit. So we are told that he comes to the town of Sychar, and we're given the location. The location is the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So this is a, this is a place of, of rich history. We read about it in Genesis. Sychar is likely the modern village of Asgar today. 
and it sits on the shoulder of Mount Ebal, opposite of Mount Gerizim. We are told that this town was near the plot of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And so in Genesis chapter 48, verse 22, we read this. Moreover, Jacob is speaking to Joseph, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And come to find out, Jacob not only fought for it, but he had also paid for that land. He paid a 100 pieces of silver for that land, and he gave that partial of land uh, as an inheritance to Joseph and his descendants. So when the Israelites came through after they had been released from Egypt and they went out and conquered Canaan, they brought the bones of Joseph with them, like Joseph requested. They brought Joseph's bones out, and they came to this plot of land, and about a couple of hundred yards from Jacob's well, they buried the bones of Joseph right here. And what's interesting, and you can Google this, that both Jacob's well and Joseph's tomb still exist today. You can, you can see it. The, the well now has a building over it. It became, uh, over time, several churches were built over the top of it. And not too far away, you can visit uh, the, the tomb, uh, supposedly, of Joseph. That, that's very, very fascinating. I think it's over in the West Bank, and it's in Palestinian territory now today. But as we read this text, there are several other things that's going on here that I want to point out before we get further into the story next week. Notice, first of all, that Jesus was wearied from his journey. He was weary. He was thirsty. So he sat down beside the well. That's good news for us, by the way. It's, it's good news for us that Jesus was weary and thirsty. And you say, well, that's strange. Why is that good news? It, it means that Jesus, the Son of God, was a human being. He was a man. He came in the flesh. I mean, John went through great lengths to make sure that we knew that Jesus was God in the flesh, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God, He was God. And in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John has gone to great lengths to help us to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. But here, John, just casually, just showing that Jesus is also human, that He's tired, that He's thirsty. He has a body just like us. He got hungry. He have a, he, if you cut him, he bleeds. He had a body that required sleep. And this was not the Jesus of uh, docetism, which was, a, which was kind of a, a mixture, early Gnostic Greek philosophy mixed in. But this docetism was this heresy that said that Jesus was not a man. He only appeared to be a man. He was fully God, but he just came in the appearance of man, but he wasn't fully man. And so the reason I say that 
because Jesus was tired and thirsty. That's good news. That means that Jesus was a man just like us. He had flesh and blood just like us. And so when the Son of God became incarnate, he became a full human being. That's why Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Whatever Christ assumes, that is what he saves. Which means that if Christ only came to be a partial man, he can only save part of mankind or a part of us. But Christ became fully human so that he could save all of us. And so he had to be made like his brother in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a big word. We should all know that. But propitiation means to appease God's wrath, to appease the wrath of God. So what does Hebrews tell us? That he had to be made like us in every way so that he could become our faithful and merciful high priest. One, he could be a go-between between God and man. He's our high priest. He's a mediator. So we, he had to be made like us. And as God and man, he's the perfect mediator between God and man, isn't he? And not only that, he had to be made like us in every way because he had to be a proper substitute for us. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sin because we're human and they're animals. The only thing that can take away our sin is a human being. And so he had to be made like us to be a proper substitute, to make propitiation, meaning to take the wrath of God upon himself in our place. So you see, the fact that Jesus was tired and thirsty and hungry, that's good news. That's good news to us. Next, there's a contrast here between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Now, it's been several weeks since we talked about Nicodemus, but if you just read the text, the story of Nicodemus is just right above here. So we have Nicodemus and we have the woman at the well. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel, one of the top religious leaders in the land. But notice, again, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. John emphasizes this, as he does in other places in the gospel, to mean that Nicodemus was still in his sins. He was still walking in darkness. He was still rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Now, notice the contrast, though, Nicodemus coming at night. Notice the contrast with the Samaritan woman just a, a few verses away who was an outcast from her own people who comes to Jesus when? In the middle of the day. Daylight. So here's an outcast, a Samaritan woman full of sin, but she meets Jesus during the light of the day, which foreshadows her coming to the light, foreshadows her being forgiven of her sins and receiving the light of the world, Jesus as her Messiah. Nicodemus walking in darkness, the Samaritan woman walking in the light. That's not a mistake. That's a theme that runs throughout 
John's gospel. So do you see the drama here? Do you see the, the twist in the storyline? Nicodemus, the one the Jews thought who was in, they, they saw Nicodemus, he was in. They thought he was in, but he was, he was out. But the Samaritan woman, the one the Jews thought was out, was in. That's a twist. That creates drama here. And this is supported by physical darkness and physical light. James Montgomery Boyce says, says it this way. It is difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, and the simple Samaritan woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status whatsoever. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She is nameless. We don't know her name. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She who had no reputation came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking. The woman was sought by Jesus. A great contrast, he writes, yet the point of the story is that both the man and the woman needed the gospel and were welcome to it. If Nicodemus is an example of the truth that no one can rise so high as to be above salvation, the woman is an example of the truth that no one can sink too low. And so John contrasts Nicodemus and the woman at the well to show that the gospel is for everyone. No one can be good enough to be saved on their own, and nobody can be bad enough to be beyond God's ability to save. But there's something else going on here that we shouldn't miss. The problem is we kind of miss it because we're not Jewish, we're not attuned to these things. And like I mentioned above, if, if, if we're watching a film and you see a person on a beach get up and run out in the ocean and begin to swim away from the beach, and as they're swimming, you hear, da-da. You, nobody has to sit there. And, now, what that means is that there's a shark somewhere. We don't, nobody has to tell you that. You know that. You know that that is a fact. I heard Someone else say, if, if you're looking at a, at a Western scene and people are out on the street and you hear the, a, a piano playing and all of a sudden everybody just scatters and goes inside and shuts the door and the piano stops and everybody's peering out the windows and two guys are out in the, in the street with dusters on and they're, they're paced off from each other and they're staring each other down, nobody has to tell you what happens next. We know the story. We know the genre. We know two guys facing each other. Everybody's off the street. They're getting ready to have a shootout. Well, we know this storyline. We know that storyline. Nobody has to tell us. 
if you were a Jew listening to this story, that would immediately tell you something when Jesus met a woman at the well. There's something more happening here. The Jews would have been attuned to the fact that any time a man meets a woman at a well, a wedding is going to take place. In Scripture, the patriarchs, where did they find their wives? At wells. Where else would you find wives? That's where all the women gather at one place. You know, that's the best place to find a wife when all the women are gathered, right? And so the patriarchs found their wives at a well. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant, you remember, to find a wife for Isaac. And where did his servant find his wife? At the well. In Genesis 29, Jacob meets his future wife, Rachel, at a well. In Exodus 2, Moses finds his wife at a well. So when a prominent person in Israel meets a woman at a well, the reader knows, just like the dusters in the street staring down each other and the, and the Jaws theme, the reader knows, hey, there's a wedding getting ready to take place. Now, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, he says, give me a drink, which is similar to what Abraham's servant said to Rebekah. Now, to a Jew reading this story, they would know that Jesus transgressed several of their cultural codes, moral codes, ethical codes. One, Jesus was speaking directly to a woman. That sounds foreign to us today. But many Jewish men did not speak to their own wives or daughters in public, much less a woman that they did not know. So men, culturally, were not to speak directly to women. And here Jesus says, hey, Give, give me a drink. Now, not only was he speaking to a woman, he was speaking to a Samaritan woman. That's even worse. And not only was he speaking to a Samaritan woman, he was speaking to an outcast among Samaritans. She wasn't even welcome in her hometown. That's why she had to come at noon to get her water and not come in the morning with the other women. She was an outcast. And presumably when Jesus asked her for a drink, he didn't give her a cup. He was presumably asking her to give her her cup or a jar that she drank out of and in the Jewish mind, would completely defile Jesus and make him unclean to drink after a Samaritan woman? And now you see there's a good reason why Jesus sent his disciples off into town to be away from all of this. Because they would have come unglued at this whole scene. They would have tried to step in and stop it. You, we'll see when they come back and they see Jesus talking to them, they are freaked out. What is going on here? You know, they 
and for good reason, but Jesus sent them away so this encounter could happen between Jesus and this woman. Now, what Jesus did here was so out of the ordinary that, that this woman was taken by surprise. She was even surprised by all of this. Look what she says in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? That's, she's calling him out on that. You, you're a Jew. You're not even supposed to be talking to me much less ask a drink for me. How are you doing this? Why are you doing this, right? So she knew the code. She knew that Jesus was violating Jewish custom. So why are you speaking to me? Why are you asking me for a drink of water? And the underlying implication is, don't you Jews believe that, that I, if I give you a drink of water or just speaking to you, that I will make you unclean? That's the underlying narrative. I will make you unclean. How is it you're speaking to me? You'll become unclean in your own view, in your own ideas. But she did not know that Jesus was different. <laughs> that rather than being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus cleanses and sanctifies whatever he touches. Nothing that touches Jesus can make Jesus unclean, but whatever Jesus touches, he makes clean. It's, it's reversal. Jesus came to make all things new. He's the last Adam. He is the beginning of the new creation, meaning he is reversing the flow from unclean to clean. So when Jesus touches a leper, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. And so again, whatever Jesus touches becomes clean. Now, we're going to take up this story next week. But uh, many of you might be thinking or saying to yourself, wait a minute. Are you getting ready to do something like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code here? Are you, are you doing something like the search for the Holy Grail business? You know, where Jesus gets married and has kids and the Holy Grail is his bloodline. You know, you know that storyline. So what is this business about Jesus and the woman at the well and a marriage? We know if we keep reading, Jesus didn't marry this woman, not in the way that we're thinking. But again, here we must think typologically. That's, that's what's going on here. It's typology, right? There's an underlying narrative here that's helping us to understand. Again, in chapter 3, Jesus was already introduced as the bridegroom. John the Baptist did that. I'm the friend of the bridegroom, right? And it's no mistake that a few verses down from this, that Jesus has a meeting with a woman at a well, which implies a future wedding. So let's think more closely about who this woman is. If this is typology, if this is um, a type and shadow, well, what are we going to find out about this woman? We're going to find out that she had five husbands, and the man that she was with 
at the present time she was living with that was not her husband. She's going she's gonna to admit that, right? And so this gives us the reason why she's drawing water at noon in the heat of the day. The other women didn't want her to come near her. She, she was an outcast. Jesus meets the woman at the well. The Old Testament, that genre is a wedding's going to take place. So in what way is Jesus her future husband? Well, I would suggest to you that this woman is symbolic of the church. The bridegroom shows up at the well and finds a woman there. This woman is embarrassing. She's sinful, scandalous, destitute, an outcast. She is living without hope in the world. She has tried over and over again to find love, somebody to love her, but she has failed again and again and again. She is unclean, undesirable. And I think that this story, what it's getting at, is that we should understand that we, the church, we were the woman at the well. Think about what we were before Jesus saved us. Here's how the scripture describes us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Sounds like a Samaritan to me. And strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a description of us before we were saved. It's just like the Samaritan woman. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. That's what you were before. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the, the Spirit of our God. We were the woman at the well. We were sinful, scandalous, cut off from God without hope in the world, an outcast. That's what we were until Jesus came and found us. Ephesians 2 1 through 7, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That's what you were. You were dead. And once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power in the air, you were following after Satan, the devil, the spirit that is now work at work in the sons of disobedience, the same spirit that's out in the world today. 
and those who are disobedient, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we were. But God, this is Jesus finding the woman at the well. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age or the coming ages, why does he see this at his, his, his right hand? Why do we rule and reign with Christ as his counterpart? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The rest of eternity, God is going to show us the Im immeasurable riches of his grace to us. In his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You see, we were, that, we were the Samaritan woman. That's us. That's the church. That's who we were. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still in our sin, just like the woman at the well. She was in her sin, but Christ came to her to transform her to change her no he didn't marry her personally but that day she became a member of his bride the church don't forget this don't ever forget this we the church were embarrassing we had to be an embarrassment to god sinful scandalous destitute an outcast, living without hope in the world. And finally, finally we found the love that we were looking for. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So do you see it? Here's the type and shadow. Here's the typology here. If we just read past it, we would miss that. Jesus is the bridegroom. The woman at the well is the bride, and she represents the church. And guess what she does? We're going to see this in a, a week or, or, or so, hopefully within a week. She goes around, and she goes to her hometown and tells everybody else, and they come out and become believers. And they become a part of the bride, too, the church. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, Jesus said, or Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her. Why? Because she was unsanctified. That, he, that having cleansed her with the washing of the water with the word, why, did it, why does he have to cleanse her? Because the church was filthy, filthy, dirty. But he washes us and cleanses us with the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's why Christ died for us, to make us holy, to make us white, to make us pure. We were, we were like the woman at the well, but we are no longer like that. And Christ is working in us to make us holy and more like him. And so we would all be sinful outcasts like the woman at the well had not God in his great mercy shown compassion by sending his son to die for us. And I want you to really remember this. This is important. Our story is not that we went out to seek Jesus. Our story is that Jesus came and found us. He had to come find us. It was necessary that he come find us. Because our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, he had to come find us. And now that he has found us, he is purifying us, cleansing us, and making us ready for the great marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, like we'll, hear, we'll do here in a moment, we are believing that that great supper is coming. We're believing what Jesus did for us to make us right and righteous and qualify us to attend that great marriage banquet. And it's a promise to all who place their faith and hope in Christ. And I hope that it is you this morning. I hope that you have this great hope in Christ, that you have believed in him. And if not, I hope today that you will receive him, that you will receive the living water that Christ offers so that you will never thirst again.